You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 26th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, the Palestinian Authority Prime Minister and his government resign after coming under intense pressure to reform and improve. As Ukraine marks two years of war at the weekend, European leaders gather in Paris to push back on Russia's triumphalist narrative. Donald Trump scores his fourth landslide victory in South Carolina, but Nikki Haley refuses to drop out of the race. I know 40% is not 50%. But I also know 40% is not some tiny group. Plus, Monocle senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco joins us to review the international papers. Yes, indeed, Vinny. Today I'll be talking about the pro-Bolsonaro protest in Brazil, plus the return of the Roncom. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. Now, over the weekend, Ukraine marks the grim milestone of two years since Russia's illegal war began. It was the biggest attack on a European nation since the Second World War. Today in Paris, 20 European leaders will gather to send President Putin a message of continental resolve on Ukraine and to counter the Kremlin's narrative that Russia will inevitably win the war. Suzanne Lynch is the author of Politico's Global Playbook and an associate editor based in Brussels. Suzanne, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what can we expect from President Macron's meeting today? Yeah, this was quite a last minute uh, decision by President Macron. Um, He announced he was going to host this uh, summit in support of Ukraine a couple of days ago, but we are expecting about 20 or so European leaders uh, to meet at the Elysee Palace uh, for this gathering. And that's not just EU leaders, but also, for example, we're expecting to see the British Foreign Secretary, David Cameron, uh, also. And I think it's coming on the back of this two-year anniversary that passed over the weekend. And the message we're getting from the Elysee is that they want to show a message um, that Europe is still supporting Ukraine, that there's obviously been a lot of negativity over the last few weeks in particular. uh, And it's going to try and show uh, resolve on the part of Europe that it's there um, that they're committed to help Ukraine in this victory and uh, continue to be motivated for that. Broadly, there is still mass consensus across Europe for supporting Ukraine. Would it not be better for European leaders to maybe be travelling to the US to bolster support where it's faltering with Donald Trump regaining control of the Republican Party? Yeah, so the biggest challenge facing uh, Ukraine is, of course, that stalled US aid that has stopped uh, in the US House of Congress. And um, Zelensky was saying over the weekend that he needs this this money, this aid, but not just the money, the, uh, the ammunition and the weapons also. I mean, in saying that, I mean, the European Union still, it did, uh, it did agree a 50 billion euro package for Ukraine back in February after some delay because of 
Hungary's resistance. But it still has some other things to do. For example, it's looking at a thing called the European Peace Facility, which is looking at you know, buying weapons or, or sourcing weapons um, from the EU to kind of strengthen, um, to allow the EU to act more swiftly, including in Ukraine, to respond to global conflicts. That still hasn't, that still has to be resolved. So they have to do that. And then there's also uh, discrepancies within Europe about how many countries are giving uh, aid and, and, and to what extent. So for example, we heard uh, quite a fiery speech, relatively speaking, from the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz at Munich just last weekend, about uh, nine days ago now, where he urged other European countries to do to match what Germany is doing. Germany um, has undergone a huge transformation and is now uh, giving Ukraine quite a lot of weapons, a lot of funding. It still has held back on one particular kind of m missile, um, but it is by far the biggest uh, donor of aid and ammunition to Ukraine. So, you know, some other countries are coming under pressure to match that and to make sure that they are giving sufficient uh, amounts. Two years uh, into this uh, war, which caught some European countries on the hop, uh, there is still not a sort of firm uh, commitment uh, to hitting that 2% target of NATO membership across Europe. With the sort of looming possibility and the comments coming from Donald Trump uh, that NATO might be uh, left uh, without its strongest member, is that message finally coming through to European leaders that they've got to step up defence spending? Yeah, I think, I mean, we have heard um, from the NATO chief, Jens Stoltenberg, just last week that 18 of the 31 NATO countries will spend more than the required 2% of GDP on defence this year. Um, so that is a, an improvement. Um, now, it's still only 18 out of 31, but it is showing that European countries are indeed beginning to realise they do need give more to give more. Donald Trump's criticisms of NATO are, are not new in the sense that other US presidents have said the same, that the US was carrying too much of the burden. Obviously, Donald Trump is threatening to go further in his comments um, a couple of weeks ago in which he seemed to be encouraging Vladimir Putin to, you know, do, as he said, what the hell he likes in Europe really did uh, cause shudders here in Europe. Um, but yes, I think there is a realisation in Europe that with particularly the potential return of Donald Trump to the White House, um, that they may not, European allies may not be able to depend on the US to the same extent that they always have done in NATO. So we are seeing uh, countries increasing their spending on defence. I mentioned Germany, for example, already where there's been a massive change around, um, but other countries too. Uh, in saying that, um, France has come under criticism. It's, this summit is obviously taking place in Paris, hosted by Macron. Uh, France has come under criticism for not giving in terms of at least what is disclosed uh, to Ukraine as much or anywhere near what Germany has, for example, Italy too. So I think there are going to be there is going to be increased scrutiny on all these other countries about exactly how much they're giving to Ukraine and could they be doing more. Mm. And President Macron himself, we all remember he tried to sort of play the leader in Europe ahead of the war and he was jetting into Moscow to meet with Putin at that big, uh, uh, strange table at the time that he favoured. Uh, but but since the uh, you know invasion, how has his leadership been? Because he was sort of trying to step up and replace Angela Merkel as the sort of big dominant leader in the EU. He obviously had the advantage in the past two years of having the biggest military uh, in the EU after Britain had left. Has he sort of managed to grasp that mantle? 
I think he has been a little bit uh, less present than some people might have expected. He, you know, over the last few days, for example, he's been grappling with farmers and, you know, farming protests and in Paris and these other domestic issues. He's done his own reshuffle of his government. So he's been preoccupied with that. He uh, did not attend the Munich Security Conference, for example. Uh, very significantly, he did not attend Saturday's uh, meeting of, of G7 leaders uh, as well. Now, not all leaders went to Ukraine. Uh, Maloney did uh, and some some of the G7, but not all of them. So he hasn't been that present. I think this is an attempt by him today to try and regain that power and that mantle. Um, the other issue for uh, Macron is that here in Brussels, a lot of people are quite that this discussion about, you know, uh, increasing and developing EU defence capabilities. And France has been resisting efforts or calls from some countries that, you know, Europe should try and get weapons from non-EU countries uh, and use that to replenish their own stocks. France is against this, really. Um, it's a bit more complex than that, but essentially they are against this because France is a huge defence industry. Um, so he's hoping and needs to keep his own defence industry front and centre here, make sure it's benefiting um, from whatever is happening in defence policy. So that's another kind of snag for Macron as he tries to kind of negotiate this, this, this difference or divergence between sometimes his international role and his domestic role. Suzanne Lynch, thank you very much. Now here's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. South Korea's government has said junior doctors face prosecution or being stripped of their medical licence if they don't end their strike action by Thursday. Around 9,000 interns and residents walked out last week over plans to raise the number of places at medical schools. Lawmakers in Tuvalu named former Attorney General Feliti Teo as their new Prime Minister, following January elections which saw the former PM lose his parliamentary seat. The Pacific Island nation is one of Taiwan's few formal allies and Teo assured Taipei on Monday that the country's ties are everlasting. A train in India has been filmed zooming at high speed past several stations without a driver. The national rail operator has ordered an investigation after the freight train travelled more than 60 kilometres without anyone at the controls. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thank you, Sophie. Now, the Palestinian Authority Prime Minister and his government have submitted their resignations after coming under pressure from the US to reform and improve their governance in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. The Palestinian Authority has long been viewed as corrupt by US politicians and Palestinians themselves. Tahani Mustafa is International Crisis Group's senior Palestine analyst. Tahani, thank you for joining us. Firstly, why have they taken this decision now? Thank you. Um, well, from our understanding, Mahmoud um, Abbas has come under pressure from regional states as well. He was in Amman just yesterday um, and from pressure from King Abdullah has had to now operationalize uh, a plan that has already been in the pipeline for, for the last month at least. Uh, and what's the reaction been like? I mean, look, the reaction amongst Palestinians is um, cautious. Uh, I wouldn't say optimistic because this doesn't essentially rid uh, the PA of, of what is the root of the problem within the PA, which is Mahmoud Abbas and, and his two lieutenants around him, who, uh, unlike the others, have not seen a shift in position. Mahmoud Abbas still remains as head of state. Um, there is the potential that now this will mean... Uh, the next step will be the the reform of the Palestinian basic law, which is the constitution, and also the implementation of a vice president uh, who is expected to um, soon take the position will be Hussein al-Sheikh. 
who is also someone who has been implicated in in a lot of the problems around the PA surrounding its legitimacy and economic mismanagement. Uh, and the same with someone like Majid Faraj, who will uh, re- re- sorry retain his position as head of the uh, intelligence, which again, um, he is somebody who has been implicated in, in this process of delegitimization and economic mismanagement within the PA. But these three individuals will remain in their positions and in some cases, like Hussein Sheikh, see their position elevated. And so how significant is the pressure at the moment to reform and improve both outside from outside factions and from the Palestinians themselves? There has been pressure for for some time now, even prior to the 7th of October. Uh, But for now, you know, look, Palestinians don't expect much from the Palestinian Authority. It has a very limited mandate, which is one of service provision. Where Palestinians want to see reform is within the PLO. And this is something that conveniently regional states and and Western allies have put on the back burner. And so for many Palestinians, they simply see this as a a cosmetic change. You know, you're simply providing... um, a reshuffle in terms of technocrats, but this really doesn't root the the sorry t- uh, root out the main the main issues here, which is um, Palestinians want to see a change of leadership, and right now uh, that leadership is Mahmoud Abbas and the two individuals around him, Hussein Sheikh and Majid Faraj, and as long as they remain in their position, we cannot expect any substantial uh, changes on the ground. The U.S. reportedly wants the Palestinian Authority to run Gaza after the conflict. Is that in any way viable? I mean, the PA has been reluctant to to claim that it will immediately take up that responsibility, but it's not ruling it it's not ruling it out completely. Uh, is it viable? Uh, seems very unlikely, given that the PA is struggling to rule over the small patches of territory it controls in the West Bank. Never mind a more contiguous territory like the Gaza Strip, uh, with a population who have lost practically everything. Which means that whether they'll be willing to accept uh, a solution imposed on them is is something else entirely. Um, also the fact that they lack absolutely no legitimacy amongst their own people. Uh, so in the absence of elections, in the absence of serious democratic renewal, any tech, sorry, technocratic changes is, is not going to be operationally viable. Tahani Mustafa, thank you. This is The Briefing. Now on Saturday, Donald Trump effectively took back control of the Republican Party. After headlining the annual Conservative Political Action Committee gathering, he headed to South Carolina to celebrate winning the state's Republican nomination. In his victory speech, he didn't even mention his last remaining rival, Nikki Haley. The defeat was particularly embarrassing for Haley, who not only hails from the state, but served as its governor for two terms. Nevertheless, she has pledged to carry on. Thomas Gift is an associate professor of political science and director of the Centre on US Politics at University College London. Thomas, thank you for joining us. Firstly, Donald Trump signalled over the weekend that he now believes he's effectively won. Well, I think he's absolutely right. And in fact, he was making this claim much earlier than just this weekend. He has been saying since the very outset of this primary season that he is the inevitable nominee. And I think to a large extent, he's absolutely right. There's nothing that we have seen to this point to suggest that his grip on the Republican Party is even remotely waning. He's now won four primaries consecutively. And I think at this point, the only question is not if, but when Nikki Haley drops out. Nikki Haley said uh, voters in dozens of remaining states and territories should have a choice uh, and that that was the reason that she was staying in the race. But how long can she viably run as a candidate? 
Well, I think that she can run as long as she's receiving money from deep-pocketed donors. And certainly there's a lot of money out there that is never Trump. And to a large extent, I think they believe that Nikki Haley can at least ding up Trump in advance of the general election. But I don't think even they believe that Nikki Haley can seriously win. This is how primaries work in American politics every year. Very rarely, if ever, do we get to the very end of the nomination process. Usually momentum starts, one candidate emerges as the clear front runner, and they more or less run the table. Sometimes, of course, we go into Super Tuesday and beyond, uh, but this isn't yeah, totally atypical that we have one candidate who seems to be the, the clear and prohibitive favorite. And why do you think even in her home state, she couldn't draw better numbers? Well, it's quite remarkable because when she was governor there in the mid 2010s, she had approval ratings that were upwards of 80 percent. So it's not like she's completely unpopular. But, you know, the flip side of this is Donald Trump is just more popular. I think a lot of Republicans believe that Donald Trump had the election stolen from him in 2020, about 70 percent. And as a result, they feel like Donald Trump is owed the nomination. But more than that, there's just a very sizable MAGA wall that is almost impossible to break. Donald Trump is uh, resonant with the Republican base, uh, despite all of his legal challenges, despite all the scandals and mini scandals, despite all of the impeachments. Donald Trump is on the money when it comes to uh, pressing the right buttons that Republicans want to hear. Is the only thing that could stop him now potential imprisonment if he loses one of these four pending court cases? And even that is not so clear because 60% of Republicans say that even if Donald Trump is convicted for some type of crime, they would still support him as the Republican nominee. And I think it's very unlikely that we're going to get there in time. There's the New York hush money case that is coming up in March. That's likely going to run until May. By that point, almost all of the delegates are going to be apportioned. And so even this kind of possibility of a spring surprise where Donald Trump's legal challenges catch up to him, I, I think it's kind of a pipe dream for Nikki Haley. Now, I mean, looking at the rematch, Joe Biden has actually got a lot that he can run on, in, in particular, the economy, which is often said you know, for US voters to be the most important issue. You've got Wall Street at record numbers, you've got low unemployment, you've got huge, you know, spending and investment going on across the country, generating jobs, and particularly in the infrastructure investment. Um, is it going to be tough for, you know, for Trump to kind of mount the message of you are better under me? Is he going to have to simply run on immigration and the border? Well, I think to a large extent, not all Americans are satisfied with the economy. I, I totally hear you. And all of the numbers do look good under Biden. But we still had multiple years of almost double digit inflation. And so Republicans are going to hit that hard, despite the fact that it has uh, come down. But I do think that this election is going to be less about policies, immigration, health care, even abortion. It's just going to be more about personalities. Uh, polls right now, I think, are more predictive than they typically would be uh, 10 months or so out from the election, simply because both of these candidates are such known quantities. They know what they're getting with Joe Biden. They know what they're getting with Donald Trump. And I just don't think that there are a whole lot of voters on the fence. And so as a result, it's probably going to be more a game of base mobilization than persuasion among moderates. 
And finally, I mean, you say people know what they're getting, but for work purposes on Saturday, for the first time in many years, I had to watch a full Donald Trump speech, 90 minutes at CPAC. And I was quite taken aback because I think the... You know, we heard a lot about Biden's age and the fact that he's not as kind of quick and, you know, he stumbles a bit. But the, you know, Donald Trump's speeches could always be quite freewheeling. But the CPAC address in particular was was quite something else. He got sort of lost in different stories. There was no message. He he seemed confused at times. Do you think that there, you know, broadcasters in the US have kind of pulled back from overexposing him in recent years? But do you think there's a bit of a duty now of showing actually, you know, it, John, you know, Biden isn't the only one who slowed a bit. There's been a bit of a deterioration in Trump too. Well, Donald Trump certainly is no stranger to gaffes and lapses in memory and making all sorts of ludicrous and unhinged statements. At the same time, though, I do think that there's sort of been a narrative around Joe Biden that's difficult to shake, even though the men are not that different in age. There's a certain perception of uh, frailty and fragility when it comes to Joe Biden that Donald Trump uh, is just not subject to. I mean, Donald Trump, despite all the crazy things that he says, says it loudly and forcefully and robustly at at times. And so Americans maybe just perceive that differently. Um, But yeah, to to the oldest presidential uh, candidates to ever get to this stage, I, I think both are up in age and a lot of people would like to see a, a fresh generation. Um, and so that's going to be certainly a, a major story heading into November. Thomas Gift, thank you. Now, even as Americans prepare to vote in November's presidential election, a leading pro-democracy nonprofit has been warning that the resilience of U.S. democracy is being put to the test. Freedom House is known for its annual assessment of the state of political rights and civil liberties in 195 countries and 15 territories around the world. Its 2023 report warned that while the United States remains free, its democratic institutions have been eroded in recent years, resulting in rising political polarisation and extremism and growing inequalities. Ahead of the publication of its 2024 index, Monocle's Andrew Muller sat down with the president of Freedom House, Michael Abramowitz. Andrew began by asking if democratic backsliding in the US damages democracy in the rest of the world. I think it does. I think that's actually one of the operating hypotheses of of Freedom House. We were founded in 1941. It's in our founding charter that we believed in having a strong, vibrant U.S. democracy as being crucial to the health of global democracy. And I think this is not to say the United States has been perfect, right? Mm -hmm. You have to approach this humbly. The United States has made plenty of mistakes and certainly, you know, the Jim Crow laws of the first part of the 20th century that that ended with the Civil Rights Act of 1965, that, that was a blight on democracy. But generally, I think the United States has been a model in terms of a strong, vibrant, improving democracy. And I think when the United States backslides, it sends a terrible message to the rest of the world. The, the curiosity, I think, of the Trump phenomenon, and we will see in November, even if he has a terribly bad day on election day in November, at least 60 million citizens of the United States are going to go out and vote democratically for a fairly obvious wannabe authoritarian. So it's, it's not just about Trump, it's about the example the American people are setting. I think that's right. I mean, let me just say one thing. I think the phenomenon of Trump is not mm. unique to the United States, sure. right? I mean, you've seen characters like Bolsonaro in Brazil or Erdogan or Orban. I'm not saying they're all exactly the same, but this kind of 
more conservative populist strain has been waxing uh, in, in recent years. So, the, first of all, the United States is not alone. I do think that we have to put things in context. The United States still, according to the Freedom House scores, is a very strong democracy, mm. has a strong media, strong rule of law. The United States has problems, uh, no doubt, but the United States has a very lively and vibrant democracy. You saw that in terms of a strong civil society and a strong rule of law. You know, Trump made outlandish claims about the election in, in 2000, he was rejected by some 60 judges in that. So I think that we have to put a little bit in context, but I think you know, we're worried about, about this. You mentioned China earlier and how there was a vague hope that it was becoming slightly more open um, at a certain point. And it seems to have passed that peak and gone back towards where it came from. But is there a concern that the Chinese model of autocracy might prove actually more exportable than the Soviet model ever was? That if, that China, the, the, the trade China offers, and we see the tra- China offering this trade across Africa in particular, um, is that you will get stuff, you will get infrastructure, you will get a more comfortable life than you've previously had, but just leave politics to us. You know, China is an important story, and clearly China is trying to present itself to the world as an alternative to liberal democracy. And they're mm. saying you can have all the fruits of capitalism with kind of order and giving up some of your liberties, and that's going to be okay. I think in the long term, that's going to be a hard sell for people. And even now, you see that the Chinese economy is slowing down. I think top-down control is never going to work. And I think you already see a reluctance of many uh, multinational companies Mm. and other companies to invest in China now because they're worried about the safety of their investments that can be like taken away, you know, by whim. I think China's looking strong right now, but I think in the long term, the vibrant democracies which have a strong rule of law, which respect individual rights, are going to be the place where people are going to want to live. People are lining up to go to the United States in terms of the refugee flows. I think that's an interesting phenomenon. They're not lining up to go to China. Well, the United States certainly doesn't appear to be taking that as a compliment at the moment, though arguably the United States should. I mean, just finally, it does strike me that an organization like Freedom House is essentially an optimistic enterprise. I guess I guess it has to be. And you could argue that indeed any democracy is essentially an optimistic way to uh, establish a country because you are placing great faith in the collective wisdom of the people. Um, so if you look around the world now, where, where do you see grounds for optimism in the furtherance of democracy? Well, first of all, I'm very optimistic, but you're right. I'm a, I, I describe myself, and I think maybe borrowing from something that Madeleine Albright once said, a realistic optimist. But I think the first thing that I would like to say about that is that there is an incredible amount of fervor among actual people for democracy, human rights. You think about what happened in Hong Kong Mm. uh, before the national security law. Millions of people going to the streets of Hong Kong to demand their rights, to say, we want the Chinese government to live up to the bargain that they struck with Great Britain in 1997. Uh, You saw people movements in places like Myanmar, Sudan, Belarus. The fact that these people movements were kind of put down in some cases very brutally, does not take away from the fact that there is a demand for freedom 
uh, and that, these, that this can be nurtured. So I think that's one thing for great optimism. I also see that countries that 30 or 40 years ago, like South Korea or Taiwan would be two examples, which were dictatorships, True. are now among the most thriving democracies in the world. And I also see that even though people get kind of cynical about this and, and negative about elections, surprises happen. You think just in the last couple of weeks, uh, the election results in Pakistan mm-hmm. were, were a surprise. The election results in Poland last year, where the ruling party lost, were a surprise. This is some 70 elections this year. There are going to be surprises and good things are going to happen, not just bad. Michael Abramowitz speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller. This is The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Finally today, it's time to review some of the day's international papers with our senior correspondent and producer, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Fernando, where have you taken us first? We are starting in Brazil with Folha de São Paulo. And Vini, I'll give you a copy of the, you know, the front page of the newspaper. So the biggest story here, the yesterday uh, in São Paulo, there was some pro-Bolsonaro uh, you know, protest in the city of Sao Paulo. Uh, and they were in the largest avenue of the city, Avenida Paulista. Uh, and you know what? It was looking pretty crowded. Uh, so I wouldn't say it was a 100% resounding success for Bolsonaro, but he was fairly successful. I mean, and he gave a speech there as well. But he had to be very careful what he said, because, of course, he's under investigation. He can't be a candidate until 2030. And one of the, the things, apparently, some members of his team, they were asking for a, for a coup d'etat. Of course, there's been an invasion of Congress uh, last year from some of their, his supporters. So he was very careful. He was trying to be a moderate. But we're talking here about Bolsonaro. Impossible to be completely moderate in that sense. Mm. And he's spent a lot of time since in the United States, hasn't he? I think his son was at CPAC last week as well. He's sort of not gone away. He's sort of copying the Trump playbook. Absolutely. I mean, in a way, less powerful than Trump. Uh, but still, uh, when you look at this image that is on the front page of Folha de São Paulo, you know, it's a lot of, I mean, that's hundreds of thousands of people. Absolutely. There. And yeah. I was surprised because some politicians who are not necessarily from Bolsonaro's party, like the, uh, the governor of São Paulo, which is an important political figure in the country, he was there as well. I mean, he, did, he, he didn't give quite a speech, but he was there kind of supporting Bolsonaro. So yeah, I mean, we have to wait and see. He can't be a candidate. His wife, though, also gave a speech. And I know she's well-liked by his fans. I mean, she could be a candidate, perhaps, if she wanted in the next mm. presidential election. And, we you know, know, Lula, of course, in his years out of power, he ended up in house arrest, effectively. Mm. You know, in, in jail, prison, proper in, jail. And in, yeah. in proper jail as yeah. well. You know, so, you know, that kind of thing doesn't stop you from returning, it seems, in Brazilian politics to, Absolutely to leave not. the country. And, by the way, uh, Bolsonaro was also, also asking for amnesty for some of the, his supporters that were trying to invade Congress. I mean, that's that's a bit rich. I mean, it's just happened last year. There's still mm. a lot of investigation happening. Uh, and it was an attack to Brazilian democracy as well, right? But that's one of the main themes uh, in his speech yesterday. Mm. Uh, and still connected to Brazil, but uh, Italian courts are getting fed up with some requests. They are getting fed up with Brazilians uh, asking for Italian citizenship. And just to give you a little background, uh, Vini, 32 million Brazilians have some sort of Italian heritage. That's a big number. Uh, But I was reading, interestingly enough, the majority of Italians that went to Brazil, you know, centuries ago, they came from northern Italy uh, and in regions like Veneto. 
you know, they're not the most populated areas of Italy. Mm. So, uh, for example, only in the region of Veneto, 12,000 Brazilians have been asking for citizenship. And it's not very simple because I was reading there are two methods if you want to become an Italian citizen. You can either go through the consulate, but it, could, it can take up to 10 years. It's a long process. But if you go via the courts... Uh, it can take up to two years. Uh, but some small communes, for example, there's one of them, I think 3,000 Brazilians were trying to, you know, to become a citizen, but it's very small and they're overloaded. And even the mayor of one of the communes said, you know, he's annoyed with Brazilians. And he said, if they wanted uh, to actually live in the commune, they would be more than happy to give them citizenship. But he's saying that the majority of people, they just want to become EU citizens and mm. go to other countries as well to work. I mean, but it is that connection between Brazil and Italy that's creating some tensions because those people, officially, they have the right if mm. they want to become Italian citizens. And there's also, there's also pathways to Portugal as well, isn't there? Yes, there are. That's another, uh, that's another one, even bigger uh, than than Italy. So uh, there, there's lots of countries in Europe where Brazilians are trying to get citizenship. Germany as well, uh, Spain. Uh, so it, it's, it's very, very interesting what we're seeing here. Mm. Uh, and finally, on a lighter note, the rom-com is back. What's this all about? And I'm very happy. And when I say they're back, they never really went away. Uh, but Variety was reporting that anyone but you uh, gross, grossed more than $200 million. I think it's the first Ron Cohn in over a decade uh, to do so. Uh, and it's the Ron Cohn with Sidney Sweeney, Glenn Powell. I've seen it. It's lovely. It's not the best Ron Cohn I've ever seen. But, you know, it's sexy. It's, it's, mm. it's set in Sydney. And I think what, I, what I'm happy about it is that it's the return of the kind of mid-budget film as well. Because there has been a bit of a kind of like shift to streamers and the budgets mm. have been cut, but there's been a bit of a resurgence. I mean, like Peckham Rye was a... a, a, a Rye Lane set mm. in Peckham in London was one that did well for Disney last year. I've got to say, one I enjoyed the most in recent years was the J-Lo shotgun wedding one. I thought that was absolutely, you know, great, you know. And you've even seen the likes of... George Clooney and Julia Roberts yes. stepping back into this fold with their, I think it was Ticket to Paradise one that was a decent effort in the last 18 months as well. So I think, you know, a studio is waking up to the fact that people are exhausted of superhero movies and they want a bit of light relief in the world today. Absolutely. Because, and, and there's a new Bridget Jones apparently coming out mm-hmm. soon as well. Uh, the news came out this week. And I'm so happy because if cinemas were becoming, you're very right, Vinny, it's either a big blockbuster or a great art house film. So it's either, you know, Spider-Man or The Zone of Interest. You know, mm. we need something in between and something lighthearted. Yeah. So I'm very happy. I don't think the Hong Kong only exists for streamers. I think, you know, there's a space for that at the cinemas and anyone but you proves that. Mm. I think they should just get on and green light Mamma Mia 3. Uh, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Fernando, thank you very much. That was Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researcher was Nyoma Aikwe. And our studio manager was Mariella Bevan. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening.